In a market saturated with endless competition and diminishing returns from cold emails, the predictable revenue model is actually starting to fade. And this new adoption of a product-led growth model has emerged as a new and refreshing way to effectively get people into your funnel and get them down the pipeline. Now, I'm not saying that predictable revenue, their methodology is done, or even the serious decisions model is completely over. I just want to say that the demand waterfall kind of approach has really changed over the last few years. And like any trend, PLG, product-led growth, isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. And it's definitely not the right solution for most companies. I have a client right now that moved to a PLG motion without my advice. And I was like, hey, this is a bad idea. And their business is struggling. And it's because their product is not designed well for a real PLG model. It's just way too complicated. And I think that's an important topic that a lot of us have to understand. So in a recent panel I had, we delved into what makes PLG work. We talked about its kind of like transformative impact. And we explored some companies that have complex offerings that enable you to tailor your approach to still be able to attain kind of similar value as you would when you do your kind of like sales-led model. Now, I want to be clear. Sales-led is still a big part of most people's companies. And it is something you should not change unless you really are capable of. And just because somebody is product-led doesn't mean there's no salespeople. It just means that the product is leading the growth engine. Free trials, freemiums, things like that. And that's really driving your business. So in today's conversation, I want you to take a critical thought about whether your business can do this. And you know how do you just become a little bit more product-led compared to like, oh my gosh, let's get rid of sales. I'm Dan though. I'm the CEO of the leading tech stack agency, McGaw. And this is The Stack, an amazing podcast where we talk to marketing executives about what are their strategies to grow their business and what's the stack they're using to actually get it up and running. Let's jump into today's conversation. I want to start introducing our panelists. The first guest we had is Aaron Bird, an amazing CEO who's done some pretty badass stuff. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Inflection. We are a marketing platform that is purpose-built for B2B companies that have a product-led motion. So I've been in in B2B MarTech for 15 or so years. Uh, Before this, I ran product at Marketo. And before that, I was the co-founder and CEO of a company called Visible. We did marketing attribution. And then we have Laura Schaefer. I'm the VP of Growth at Amplitude. Um, It's a digital analytics platform, makes it really easy to understand your customer's journey through your product. So very topical for us here. Before Amplitude, I was at Twilio for around seven and a half years, actually started our growth product team there and led that through the years. So tons of learnings from that. I'm happy to to share. Um, And before that, I was a product and growth leader at Rapid, as well as a company called Bandwidth. So basically, I've been doing growth since it was called e-commerce and no one really knew what it was. I also advise folks in growth, and I'm an angel investor. And lastly, Francis Barrero, a guy that I've known for a long time and is doing some really cool stuff over at Mad Kudu. So I'm Francis. I'm the co-founder and chief product officer here at Mad Kudu. We're a, I'll say, a sales intelligence platform, and we've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of the most exciting PLG companies out there. Personally, I come from a data science background then turn to the dark side of sales and then back into product. It's kind of like going full cycle. 
let's talk a little bit about our, our first topic we want to review. So I think the most interesting thing is you have these organizations that had been very enterprise or sales led over the years, where if you even wanted to look at a product, you had to go through a demo. If you even wanted to be able to like understand what pricing is, you had to talk to a sales rep. And I think there's been a lot of change naturally just in the way that we buy things over the last 10 years anyways. I will say millennials, I think have been a big part of that. Don't get me wrong. I fit in that demographic. I don't want to talk to somebody. I just want to be able to try something. But I also think at the same token, like people are just better at understanding tools, right? So it's not just an age thing or a generation thing. It's just people understand tech and they don't want to talk to somebody. They just want to be able to try it out. So I think being able to let people try your product just change things. This has had a big impact on people's sales processes, right? And the way that they need to think about doing sales because they now get into the product and sales has to be added on. So I'd love to understand what your thoughts are and how PLG has changed the sales process. Aaron, you cool if I start with you on this one? I think it's an arrow in your quiver for a sales rep, right? If you've got a PLG motion that you can use to help with deals. I think even starting at top of the funnel, I think the best SDRs, or even if you're a sales rep that's doing top of the funnel, like outbound, incorporating the product into that, right? So it's not about, hey, book a demo or get on a call with me. It's actually go try our product. And then of course, hopefully you've instrumented it. You've got analytics. You can see, well, when did they actually log into the product? What did they do? Did they hit a milestone? See where they're having problems. Did they hit the aha moment you expected on day five? Things like this. And then reach out to them proactively. Like, oh, I noticed you, uh, you know, you added another user and they haven't responded yet. Or I noticed you tried to run this report, but you know, you didn't finish or, you know, kind of being a partner and walking them through that whole experience of adopting the product long before they sign, right? Long before you close a deal. I think if you use that asset well, like you said, buyers want to engage with your product. They don't want to get on a Zoom call and see a PowerPoint, right? So embrace it, walk them through it, be like an onboarding specialist, not a sales rep trying to close a big deal. Both SDR, AE, depending on where you're on the funnel, people that really embrace that and own it, I think you've done a really good job. You know, we could talk about the enterprise side too of like, 50 people at IBM are using your product. How do you then engage with them, score it using something like Mad Kudu, obviously, to do that? But again, it's an asset, right? Whether you're trying to pull people into your product or you already have a bunch of people at a company in your product and you want to figure out who should I talk to or are they ready to talk to me, et cetera. It's an awesome asset for the sales reps that that embrace it and do it right. I'm intrigued. I think you said two kind of interesting things. You're talking about the way people interact with the product, and that's a way that sales would engage them. But you also have the scoring mechanism, right? That enables you to understand how people go. I guess from a mad kudu perspective, right? You do more than scoring. How do you think about this new sales motion that has to happen when you're trying to identify who who should I even be talking to? To some extent, I feel like we we tend to make a big deal out of PLG. And to some extent, it's not that different from what we used to have from an inbound perspective, right? The thing that PLG is doing is giving more capabilities to end users to actually try the product and like surface things out. But the same way that from an inbound perspective, when you were putting content out there, you're thinking about putting like content that was relevant to the end users of a tool like HubSpot for them to discover, hey, like actually I was able to try the website greater, right? Like one of the most one of the early kind of, I'd say, lead magnet that was out there. The idea was like you attract people, you get their attention, and then you still have to sell to the executive buyer. And I think PLG is fairly similar. And one of the traps that a lot of folks tend to fall into is thinking that you know we obsess over the product and we tend to forget about how critical differentiation is. April Dunford's book on, uh, I think it's called Sales Pitch, 
has been a bit of a revelation, like for me, and even internally, something that I'm using all the time. And I think one of the dangers in PLG is that we tend to obsess over our product. And I think like PLG motions lead to that thing of like, we're obsessing over like our, the users and like, are they getting value from the product, which is definitely critical, but it tends to lead us to forget about the actual like decision maker. And when times are a little bit tougher, like they are today, and like money is not like falling off of trees, then like having the sales team really focus on what is differentiated about your your product, what is differentiated about your perspective on the market is really critical. And so I think like one of the mistakes that I see a lot of companies do is when they think about like PQLs, which is kind of the standard like PLG scoring, they really focus on product usage and like who's using my product, who's getting value from it. But they tend to forget that the buying decision is made at the org level and that the person that's actually going to make the decision is potentially someone you're not even seeing. I think like one of the big perspectives that we try to bring to our customers is to really think about that duality that you know, the people that are super active in the product are potentially champions of the product, but they might not have that big of a, an impact on the actual deal. And as a sales rep, it's important to keep on doing that kind of outbound within the account, but leveraging the product information to do so. So and it's a long answer to maybe like not, not the question you were asking, but I would say if you're thinking about running PQLs and things like that, really think about who the buyer is and, and make sure that your, your PQL motion is really bringing your reps in front of the, the right decision makers. Very helpful. And, and Laura, it's actually interesting in the podcast that I had with Justin, your, your chief product officer, one of the things he talked about was the North Star metric for Amplitude, which has always been a PLG company, right? You were PLG from the start, huge free user abilities, free accounts. Justin had talked about a key metric is the ability to share reports with other people. So when I think about like, even as an analyst on our team, they're sharing reports with decision makers, which is a North Star metric for y'all. How do you think about, hey, we've got these users, which are independent contributors, but they're not buyers, right? Going to Francis's point, like usually the users of the product are not the actual end decision maker. How do you think about that? I think it's a really great point, right? At the end of the day, the product is a sales force. It's becoming a part of the sales team. It does only certain kinds of selling though. It's going to sell the end users and the champions. It's going to cause you to get that groundswell grassroots kind of growth at a company and the energy and, and the foot in the door. But it requires sales to kind of come in and have that really deep dive conversation with the folks at the top. So the question is, how do you get those sales forces to operate together to have the optimum impact that you want them to have? Because if you sold the end users and you've done the grassroots, you haven't captured the buyer, it's going to be really hard to make that progress go. And where I see that manifesting is longer buying cycles where the champion's carrying all the weight, right? And then you see that go on for longer and longer sales cycles. But if you are able to tie those together faster, so we mentioned Amplitude, one of the ways is by recognizing, okay, how do you empower your champions to do that pitch? And sometimes we think of it, you know, I see a lot of companies really zero in on like an email or like some kind of communication stream, but really you want to do it by showing, not telling the value. So how can you get the value that champions are experiencing in the ongoing day-to-day, week-to-week of your buyer? How do you get them to feel the impact of what your champions are experiencing? And so that's where we landed on sharing is one of those things. So the champions experience their dashboard, right? And they get their create reports to understand their business. And then someone like a Francis has it open on a screen somewhere and is seeing it and getting value from it, right? So you always want to think through, okay, how do I empower my champions, not in my users, not just in a 
communication method, but actually in getting them value from the product, from the work that the folks are doing. So that by the time the sales rep is trying to bridge communication with those folks who are making the buying decisions, they're already somewhat bought in. Because the more that you can get that person to come into the decision, come into that discussion, feeling confident, and you have that momentum, the more likely they're going to take that call, the more likely they're going to prioritize that budget. So you always want to be thinking about how do you leverage a product as the right kind of sales motion? Because it is it's exactly what it is. It's selling you. It's selling your company. How do you leverage that and push that as far as it can go, but then really pull in the buying decision, the buying makers on the side and using the things mm. like sharing and things to pull them into it as well. Cool. Maybe one thing I that I think is really interesting about Amplitude, because it's been through like a bunch of different ways of positioning their unique value prop. I think one of the things that Laura like anchored on a little bit is that the product only does like some part of the selling, but it fits into the selling. If there's one thing I hope people can remember from what I'm saying is that today, like we live in the paradox of choice. There's like hundreds of tools that can do analytics. There's hundreds of tools that can do scoring. There's just like a million tools that people can be exposed to. And the easiest decision to make is to not change anything. So like 60% of the deals you're losing, you're losing them to doing nothing. And so what's really important is like, how does your product differentiate from everything out there? And that's like the sell strategy is like, your pitch should be like, why are we different? Like, why do we think differently? And so then what becomes really important is like in the product-led motion, the value that your users are getting from the product should be something that relates back to the differentiator so that you can actually use the engagement of the users as a proof point to the potential buyer, say, hey, by the way, like I'm telling you that we're different in this way. By the way, here's a proof point that that's the case. Amplitude is something really interesting. Like they started, at least in my mind, the reason we started using Amplitude was that they had, from a differentiator perspective, you could use mixed panel segment, but Amplitude had the biggest free tier. We're like, great, like we're going to go use Amplitude because it's free for a lot. And then it became, well, it's actually like the best tracker across like mobile and web. And then like you would see the experience of the free product actually change based on the differentiator that they were pushing on from a marketing and a sales perspective. I think that's really interesting because again, in a lot of companies, I see like the product is thinking about like, how do we delight the users? And like the whole free experience is like centered around that, which sometimes decorrelates from what is different about our perspective. And therefore, it's very hard to take the usage and relate that back to something the buyer is going to care about because they're going to be pitched by 100 other companies that do the same thing. And everyone is going to be telling them, oh, we do dashboarding better. We do analytics better. And so the differentiator, I think, is really critical. That, and then I'd also say, just to your point, Francis, I think it's also about you don't want to get stuck in what you've done. And that's so easy to have happen. And so you want to be thinking, okay, how are my sales factions working together? My product sales faction, which is doing this kind of sales, and my sales faction, which is more selling at the top end. And one of the things we realized at Amplitude was we were missing a piece. There was an opportunity. We'd always had a really great free tier, but we then, from there, you might've experienced yourself to make a really big jump to buy a sales-led plan. There was nothing in between. So we actually recently released a new self-serve plan about a month ago now that allowed those champions to move up to a tier and it's low enough priced 
that you don't really need to pull in the C-suite at that point to buy because it's a low enough price that the champions can kind of get through. And that makes for a really effective, again, product-led growth and product-led sales motion because you're always thinking about, okay, how do I make these work together better? And by having that really big jump between free and sales-led, we were doing a disservice. We were not allowing them to work well together. So you always want to be thinking about how do I disrupt myself be very open and honest about things that are not playing well. And then don't be afraid to go after that and make those things, make those connections happen. So in this case, it was leveraging pricing and packaging to empower self-serve users to go further in the journey so that we didn't have to bring in C-suite so early. You know, you don't have to, we don't no longer have to do that in order to get companies buying from us. So yeah, super fan of the disrupt yourself, always be thinking about how those play together and then don't be afraid to make those changes. Yeah, I think that's a great point. One of the things that great PLG companies do really well is I think of it as just they're ever expanding. So a free user, getting them to pay is really just an expansion motion, right? It's getting them to pay something. Uh, and then like you said, if you've got these huge stair-step movements in pricing and packaging, you're now back to a sales-led model of having to like go get that contract and go get this movement. If you can do more of a usage-based where it's a bunch of tiny steps getting all the way up, then they, you're just really good at constantly expanding, right? And using your product and the adoption of your product within the org to drive that expansion. Eventually, you're going to sign, obviously, an enterprise deal and Every PLG company that's, you know, goes public or 99% of them, most of their revenue comes from, you know, humans talking to humans and signing deals. But right before that was a infinite expansion of a free product that led to like maybe a small deal that someone self-served, self-served, et cetera, before the enterprise team then went and like landed that bigger deal. So I think if PLG is just being really good at expanding, so good that they're willing to give their product away for free, knowing that their people will expand and pay. Yeah, and it's been interesting. You know, I think PLG, if you would have talked about PLG motion even 18 months ago compared to the way that we're talking about it today has dramatically changed, right? Now that the economy has changed, now that VC money is changing, interest rates are up. A lot of people we see in PLG are coming out with lower tier plans. And I can speak specifically for my company, UTM.io. It was a very big free plan. And then you had to talk to somebody to basically get on one of our enterprise plans. And what we've done is something very similar to what Amplitude has done is we've come up with a better step ladder to get you into a $20 a month plan that then leads you to a $500 a month plan. But to get on enterprise, you still need to talk to a salesperson. But at least at that point, we've leveraged a trial flow to enable you to have better access to the product. And I think there's cool products out there like AppQs, which I know Amplitude uses as well, like we do at my company, that enable us to show the value of the product or walk you through something while not having to have a sales rep on the call. A lot of that has changed. And it's interesting to see how the economy has changed as well. And I think the economy is going to continue to force more people in this direction. One thing that's really intriguing to me, and I'd love to have a quick round fire on this, is I do think that there's companies that should not go as maybe product-led as they think they should. There is still products in the marketplace which are very complex and have a hard time to go product-led because like, once you get in there, you're like, I don't know how to do this. So I'm curious, like, if you were to make a recommendation to an organization with a complex product, maybe large size enterprise that still want to do something PLG, what would be like the half step there? I think it's, you know, you want to recognize, okay, what fundamentally does PLG do? Well, it builds internal champions. It builds some trust, right? Because in the day, we know that when folks are talking to a sales rep or reading, you know, what we have on the website, you know, you're kind of speaking to a, a biased voice and narrator, right? And one of the things that the 
product does and PLG does is it helps show in a very high trust way what the value is. So you think, okay, if my product is complex enough, I can't do that. Maybe it's a physical thing. And I think if you start from that lens, you start to think of how you can, as you say, get in half measures there, kind of accomplish the same thing. So that's okay. Well, trust is about making sure folks or understanding, you know, maybe from their peers that it's valuable, right? So thinking through ways you can really make sure that it's clear from other people other than you, why to use it, how to use it, what was successful. That would be the lens I'd always think of it through is you don't want to lose the value that PLG provides. You just got to get there in different ways and make sure that you are leaning in as hard as you can there. And then of course, you know, as very biased growth leader, I'm always going to challenge, you know, folks say, well, I don't really think we have that motion. Always push back, right? Because mm. users are increasingly expecting to get some value on their own. If you mm-hmm. aren't providing that, someone else is going to do it. I definitely agree with that. I think some other tools too are, you know, if you can't give someone access to their own account via free trial or premium version, maybe you can give them access to a demo account. So, you know, if it's a setup problem, like this takes a hundred hours to set up and your own custom implementation, well, that's not going to work for a free trial, but I could give you access to a demo account that's already been set up. Maybe even I can tailor that to you. So tell me more about your business and I'll change what's in that demo account to reflect more like what it would look like if you were onboarded. Um, So there's a lot of great tools out there, sales enablement tools to allow you to do that. I also think back to the stair step of value. I mean, for me, that's the unlock that PLG does in the sales process. It allows people to do a little bit of work, get a little bit of value in return, do a little bit more work, get a little more value in return. It's a stair step of, of value that's incremental and, and small. How could you do that with a really big deal? Well, maybe you could lower your entry price, right? So the thing that takes 100 hours, well, maybe you could find a way to make... Uh, there's a version of it that only takes 30 hours and I could cut the initial cost of just getting into the product by 70%. If you're competing against someone who can't do that, well, maybe you could get someone to do a POC uh, and pay for four months of that price, get into your product, and now you're further ahead in the sales process than your competitors are. So PLG doesn't have to be like, oh, it's free and anyone at your company can just go sign up on their laptop in five minutes, right? It could be that you're just going to change pricing and packaging to give them a a much smaller bite-sized entry point, and then you can expand from there. I love it. Francis, you want to add anything there before I move on to my next question? Two things I'll say. So one, if you have a very complex product, uh, you're not really reducing the barrier if it's then like super complicated to do anything. That's where sidecar products, I think, are incredibly helpful. And again, I'll take the example of HubSpot's website greater, like getting value from HubSpot isn't easy. Like you have to load contacts, you have to run campaigns. It's like saying, hey, like we're going to give you a way to like rate the quality of your like inbound receiver, which is your website. That's like a way to experience value. And it's very tied back to the differentiator and the positioning of HubSpot, which is like we are inbound, right? They kept on pushing inbound, inbound, inbound. So the second thing I will say, aside from like Reduce friction, make it simple if you can. Sidecar products are a good way to do it if you don't want to expose your entire product. The second part is don't do PLG, even if it's like frictionless, but that what people are going to experience inside the product is not going to reinforce your positioning and your differentiation, right? So if you have tools that are like super easy to use, but then they're not really helping you differentiate yourself, the risk is that people are just going to log in, like do some stuff. You're going to get a ton of free users. But very likely, you're not going to get any paid users. And it's going to be really, really painful for the sales team to close anything that's like above, I don't know, like $500. Because then you're just like any other tool. So like really, really anchoring on 
what is our positioning? Why are we different? And and why should you do something about this and, and pay us is, is critical. And I think, again, before you go into PLG, think about how this like free experience, this PLG experience is going to reinforce your differentiation. Yeah, totally agree. I think you have to understand really what is the value my product delivers? How are you different than other people? But I think going back to something that was said earlier is while you might have a champion who's using your product, you have to understand that the value you deliver to that champion compared to the value that you're delivering to that decision maker, those are two separate things in many cases. So we see that a lot. And how do you make sure that you're delivering the right message and right differentiator to the right audience, which can be really, really hard. I think this leads me into an interesting question. You know, with PLG, we have to have really good product analytics. Like you have to know how people are using the product. You have to know how they're doing that. So I guess like when you think about the importance of product analytics and how somebody's going to be tactically or strategically effective with product analytics in a PLG motion, what are some of the big things that people need to really think about here? One of the biggest mistakes that I see people make is like, as soon as you start PLG, again, you're reducing barriers to entry. So you're going to get a ton of people that are signing up for the product. One of the big challenges is that's really critical when you look at adoption and user retention, that you're focusing on the user retention for users that matter, right? So you still have a core ICP and the people who sign up for your product might not be your core ICP. And I see a lot of companies that end up chasing their own tails because they're trying to figure out how do I increase my daily retention? But the thing is like, they're not breaking down the cohort by actual ICP. So they're trying to re- you know increase the daily retention overall, but they're not realizing that potentially there's a bunch of students or like there's a bunch of spam that's signing up for the product. Those are never, you know, they're not expected to get high daily retention. Like a company that doesn't have a website or an app is not going to be retained in Amplitude. They're not going to get value and that's fine. And we don't want to change the product for that. And so when you're thinking about your analytics and the targets that you're setting, it's really critical to adapt those and make sure that you're filtering the analytics against the ICP to not end up like, yeah, chasing the wrong target. Mm. And I think there's an interesting thing. And just before uh, Laura, you jump in, Superhuman did a really, really good job of this. Anybody's using their product. They had a product market fit survey that they would have inside the product And they would identify who those different ICPs were and how much people liked or disliked their product. But that segmentation was tracked into their analytics, which then enabled them to understand like, hey, this is no wonder you hate the product. You're not our ICP. You're not our product market fit. So like, I should not be optimizing for the fact that you gave me a two on my net promoter score. So I think that tracking that you're talking about is so critically important. And I'm curious, like, Laura, when you think about trying to get people tracked appropriately there, like that's a hard problem in its own right. It definitely can be. It 100% can be. And as you get more advanced, it it will be. But I'd say there's actually one really excellent trick that everyone should be doing, which is segmenting your users right at sign up. And everyone's very afraid to ask questions in a really critical space up front before they've gotten value, before they're in a product to introduce friction, right? Because that's what it is, asking questions. What I found in all of my years of doing this is that you should never be afraid to ask questions in that flow as long as they are the good kind of question or the good kind of friction, meaning questions that make it clear to the user what value they get from answering. These are questions like, what are you here to build? What product would you like to use? Have you used our products before? Would you like to build using this coding language? Those kind of questions people are happy to answer because they know it's going to lead them to relevance. And the key of all great self-serve experiences is relevance. If you're not relevant, but you have an excellent experience, doesn't matter getting back to Francis King into the ICP, right? And to be relevant, you have to have a person in mind, therefore you have to prioritize someone. 
the bad kind of friction, right, is where you ask, like, what's the size of your company? What's your budget, right? How much revenue do you have? Those kind of questions that selfishly help your team, those are going to stop people in their tracks. So it's really important to split that out. Uh, it's a very actionable, fast way. Everyone can turn around from this to go and think through what are the questions that would help me give relevance to users. You will find it's not going to hurt your conversion. I actually had my conversion rate increase once I added five questions to the Twilio onboarding flow and we actually increased conversion 5%. No changes to onboarding, nothing. Just the fact that people like confirmed, ah, this is the right place. They can do what I want to do. I'm selecting it. So don't be afraid of that. That's a really great, cheap way to get that data in. And what's great about it too is it's intent. You can get intent in there, which is harder to track quantitatively. So it feeds mm. into a lot of things. Now you've got funnels by ICP. Now you mm. can know how you're activating with people wanting to do X versus Y. Now you get a sense of quant from a quantitative perspective. What's the, your pie chart? You know, people who are coming in who are students yeah. versus working at businesses versus building things on the side. So that's a really quick way to do it. And then, of course, as you get more advanced in your personalization and segmentation journeys, you want to absolutely layer in quant, the deeper you know, engagement behavior. And you can do that in a very sequenced, high priority, high leverage kind of way by using that segmentation data from your signup flow to know, okay, here's my ICP. I see they're coming in the right zones. They're using our product in these ways. So therefore, I'm going to focus first on really fleshing out quantitatively those people first. And that mm. allows your team to not just do work to understand people, but do work to understand people that's going to cause you to be able to provide value and grow your business. Yeah. And Aaron, you're pretty specific on your ICP in some of our conversations, and you're pretty selective in regards to people that y'all are talking to at Inflection because you want to make sure you're you're focused on the right people. So I guess it's like, how do you think about understanding your, your ICP when it comes to the product analytics and even in your company? There's kind of two types of companies that we see in PLG. Uh, they either started as product only. They had like no sales, maybe even no marketing. Uh, and then they got to a certain scale and they realized, hey, we need to start doing enterprise sales. And, and that's what's going to drive the, the growth from here. Or they actually started with sales-led and then they added PLG, right? If you started in product-led and you had no sales and marketing, you've probably done a really good job of segmenting users and onboarding flow and kind of a lot of the things we've talked about. But I would say like half of our customers and people we talk to actually started with sales-led and had a product that they could add a free trial or move down market or add a usage-based tier, et cetera. And I think if you're doing that, I would be open to maybe not let everyone in. If you're going to add a free tier or you're going to add a premium version, a PLG motion, what have you, maybe don't let personal email addresses in first, right? Make them sign up with a corporate email. And now talk about ICP. Great. I've got a domain. I can enrich it. I can hit Salesforce. I can see, are they an ICP? Are they a target account? I mean, even early on, we experimented with a free trial, but you had to be in our ICP list. So give us your email, validate that you have the email. And if you're not on that company list, I'm sorry, you can't use the product, right? These are perfectly legit things you can do as a company. Obviously, the last one's somewhat extreme, but not allowing personal email addresses, not allowing students in. If you're just launching a PLG motion, let's be real, right? In the end, who's going to buy? Let's focus on that, particularly today. Laura, you've worked in some pretty high volume Sign up yeah. flows, right? So I guess like, what's your perspective on the whole personal email sign up? Because this is even something my product managers ask me in my own companies. Like, we should ban Gmail. And I'm like, but we can't. <laughs> We're UTMs. Like, everybody's using Google in that case. So what's your perspective? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think that you can ever dismiss 
personal. Like I've, I've seen, um, this is one of the things I've seen, like some of the startups do that I work with and advise is they'll carve out and only in their dashboards, look at business emails. And I say, no, you can't do that because these days you've got folks who sometimes want to avoid sales so much they'll sign up with personal to get started, especially if you're a new brand. We actually at Twilio had a very large retailer uh, their developers sign up with personal emails to avoid detection so that we could not reach out to them, which was very funny. For that reason, you can never ignore them, but there's brass tacks you should do, like use third-party things to help you scrub out who someone is. Remote work obviously makes that a little interesting, but there's always that. Those are I always find those to be valuable to sniff that stuff out. But beyond it, you just view them as a segment, right? And what's beautiful about having, again, a sign-up flow where you're asking people about intent and what they're looking to do is you can use that as an additional signal as to who's valuable and who's not. So if you have someone who's signing up from a personal email and they say they're building a personal project and they don't really have a timeline that they care about and they're kind of kicking the tires, you can safely say that you've got a lot of signal from that person that they're probably not part of your ICP bucket. But if you've got a personal email and they're saying, well, I've got a really urgent project, I've got a lot of people working on it, my timeline is short, and they're maybe using a use case that you know is linked to higher spend, that can send signals that help you better understand that group. So view the personal email sign up as a signal. And it definitely is, right? They're almost categorically going to be as a category less valuable than your business signups, but that doesn't mean you dismiss them. You use your other signals to help paint the picture of that value. And then you can use that, right, to better understand how you should be thinking about them. For some companies in some situations, it's almost a complete 100% map where if it's personal, it's not going to be valuable. And if it's business, it is going to be valuable. But you want to know what your balance is. So use the other signals to help inform. And then it also changes over time. I got to disagree a little bit. I think that you can definitely ignore them and you can even prevent them from coming into the product. It depends on the market. So like Amplitude obviously is competing with other products that allow people to sign up with a Gmail or whatever. And so if your competitors are doing it, and you do that, obviously, that's that's probably not a good idea. You're making a very clear statement there. But if you're a company that's sales-led today and you're adding PLG, and let's say none of your competitors have PLG, even allowing someone to sign up for free with a business email, you're now doing things that you have a competitive advantage in the market, right? So I think it does depend on like where you are and your competitive landscape. Because a lot of companies we see... Again, started with sales led, they got to like 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, and now they're adding a, a PLG motion. And if your competitors don't have it, I think you can be a lot more uh, strict about who you let in. There's a lot of other things at play too, right? Like there's spam, there's resources. If you were product led from day one, you solved all these problems on like, you know, how do we deal with a spike in usage or how do we like monetize all these free users or how do we effectively pay for them or take it out of our cogs. But if you're sales led and you're adding a free trial or a freemium version, you know, maybe you do want to intentionally limit who can get in there because you want to reduce the cost of goods impact or resourcing or spam or things like that. So I think it depends on the market and kind of the competitive landscape too. Curious, Francis, do you want to be the tiebreaker a little bit in this uh, debate here? Like, what are your opinions? I I have some thoughts, but I'd love to hear yours. I think I have too many customers that are beta dev where there's a lot of exploration that's happening on the personal email side that has led to substantial deals afterwards to, to feel like you can close the door. But again, I think it's... Just like every conversation, the answer is always, it depends. And I think it's just like, if your product is going to incur some massive costs, as soon as you have a sign up, then try to make sure that you're only bringing people that are qualified and kind of have it like be an exchange of saying, look, like I'm giving you access to like something that's incredible. 
is valuable and exchange for that value, respectfully, please give in an email that justifies you getting access to this. I would recommend listening to Laura's uh, episode on Lenny's podcast because that's one of the things that she talks about. And if you have a product selling to developers, I think it is a pretty high risk to close the door to the Gmail. Like that's something that's going to backfire even from a brand perspective. You want to jump in, Aaron? You were going to say something? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it goes back to the market. Yeah. You can't sell to developers without like gating it to a corporate email. But what percentage of companies in the world sell to developers? One. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, So if you're selling to sales executive, it's perfectly fine to ask for their their phone number. Selling to developers is hard. That was my job at Code School. And then when I supported New Relic, oh my gosh, uh, it can be a bloodbath. Either way, when you're a startup, right, or a small company doing PLG, how do you actually bring sales into the process? And from my side, we actually don't bring sales into the process. We bring in customer success. So everything is around like, how do we make you successful? And like, naturally, if you want to talk to us, you're going to talk to CS first. If you're qualified by CS in our process in the demo flow, then you would talk to a salesperson. But that's unique to that brand, right? I don't think that's a recommendation for everybody else. That's just what we do at our company. How do you bring in sales in a PLG motion anyways? Once you have a hypothesis, like a true hypothesis that you can close deals at more than $5,000. I like it. It's a good one. Aaron? Francis mentioned this earlier, and I think it's a good point. Is your buyer your user or not? So if the Mm -hmm. buyer, the one that the decision maker with budget, if they're not one of your users, then you have to bring in enterprise sales motion top down after you've got a ground spell. If your buyer is one of your users, then like you said, you can just use customer success to just drive adoption, right? Like just, Mm. let's just, as soon as people get in there, let's just drive adoption because the person that's using it is the one that's going to buy. So I just need to get them to a certain point and then I'm going to be able to get the contract that I need. So I think that's a big binary question up top for me is like, who's Mm. signing? Are they one of your core users and early on in the product? Laura? I think one of the best things that a PLG team can do in terms of that graduation, that critical graduation of sales is to really understand the moments that make someone inclined to want to have that engagement. And then also on the flip side are the right kind of profile for you to encourage that. So that's your ICPs hitting key moments that are inflections towards them being ready for that engagement. That might be hitting a limit on a package that they're on. It might be uh, having an error for a kind of throughput. It might be a surge in users. I see that being so critical because the more that you can help tee that up for sales, the better they can have the conversation. And sometimes that occurs early for a company that's getting out the gate quickly. You know, they have some kind of spike or some surge. If you are able to then do the tee up to sales at that time, you can really accelerate that deal and then help move the customer through in a very positive way. Whereas if you are more banking on unilaterals, like hitting an aggregate kind of moment in time or revenue or something like that, you can sometimes miss some of the opportunities. I think it's a great place to start. But as you go through, really understand, okay, what what are those kind of trigger moments that would allow someone or make someone want to have that engagement as long as they're an ICP profile? Some differing opinions towards the end there, which honestly is what makes a great panel. But the one thing we can all agree on is that PLG provides unique value and has the ability to put you ahead of your competitors. If you do it in a smart way that works with your product. Because I want to be clear, some companies who roll out PLG 
mess it up. And next thing you know, their competitors are kicking their ass. So don't think this is always for you, but I do believe in PLG. I've been at multiple PLG brands. UTM.io, my company is completely PLG. Uh, Amazing way to get companies going. But again, we have a sales team that talks to those people. So you just can't come in swinging, thinking that some general lame approach is going to work for your business. You've got to really figure it out. You've got to work hard to basically understand your data. And analytics is so critical. But like with anything you do, really, your company is a unique snowflake. So you need to tailor things to you. And if you don't know your analytics and you don't know your data and you don't have a way to engage people in the product through like passive measures like app cues or walk me or any of those things, or you don't have good analytics like Amplitude, you're really going to struggle here because product-led growth requires great data. This has been a special panel episode of The Stack. So make sure you come back next week to get a more in-depth episode with Don Golsons. The tech stack he's been using at Mesa Thermostats is super cool. So be sure to rate this episode, leave us a review. We want to know how we're doing. And thanks for taking the time. We'll see you next week. <laughs>